0: Hey, if you got a Bible, meet me in Luke chapter 10. If you're a guest with us, I want to say thanks for coming. The past couple weeks, we've been in a series called Home Improvement, because I believe that there are some areas in your life that God wants to fix up, but like your home improvement projects, he has taken a back seat. You've been putting him off, and our goal for the series is to change that. I've been telling you that if you learn it wrong, you're going to live it wrong, And we have learned some lessons wrongly in our culture, specifically about relationships and finances. God has a plan for both of those things. And that's what we talked about the first couple of weeks. This morning, I want us to learn what God has to say about our schedules. I believe that Jesus cares about your calendar. In fact, the entire chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 10, I would encourage you to read on your own. It is all about productivity and distractions which in our world we have invented a word for the intersection of these, productivity and distractions. We call it multitasking. Anybody willing to admit that they are a multitasker? Yes, I am fantastic at multitasking. I can waste time, be unproductive, and procrastinate all at once. It's amazing. It's just my cross to bear. Uh, But we live in a world with unprecedented, I would argue, unhealthy multitasking. Stanford University conducted a study and said that the average American will spend seven hours a day using 2.4 devices. And so you've got your phone out, you've got your computer out, the laptop, the iPad, Siri is on, the TV is on. TV used to meant being able to sit down and do nothing. But nowadays, you have to do something while doing nothing, and 60% of Americans will browse the internet while watching TV. We constantly scroll, we constantly swipe, we constantly Snapchat, all while complaining there's nothing to do. But you're using all these devices. I found this interesting. A different study revealed that people who use a computer at work are interrupted once every 10 minutes. Whether it's a bing or a ding or a you've got mail. Does that even happen anymore? I don't know if that happens, if that's still a thing. But uh, it used to be. So I'm old. I understand that. But you're being disturbed every 10 minutes, which means in a typical workday, you will lose two hours of productivity. Which means your company is also losing billions of dollars in revenue every single day. In fact, the most unproductive week in U.S. history is about to come up. March Madness Somebody. Come on, we're watching that, baby, all day. It's awesome. Uh, And the reason I bring all this up is because research is finding out that all of this multitasking is actually rewiring your brain. We're becoming addicted to technology and our attention spans are being shortened. That's significant because this addiction is actually very, very dangerous. In fact, the addiction to technology is killing people. This year, 5,000 people will die in traffic accidents because of a distracted driver or themselves being distracted using technology while driving. You should already know that multitasking kills intimacy. I mean, just pull out your phone on your next date and you will discover that firsthand. Uh, I don't think you could argue that multitasking kills creativity. How come we haven't had a Beethoven or a Mozart or a Shakespeare or a C.S. Lewis in the foreseeable history? Because we're too busy to actually sit down distraction free and create. And what you need to be aware of this morning is that science has proven multitasking actually kills the part of your brain, listen to this, responsible for empathy and emotional control. It's dying. And so if you've ever found yourself just freaking out and losing your mind for no apparent reason, and you reflect back on it, you're like, what was that even about? It's from the fact that you spend seven hours a day multitasking. You're killing your brain. And it's why thousands of years before this was even a thing, before multitasking was even known, it is strictly forbidden within the confines of the human soul. Ecclesiastes six says, Better is a handful of quietness. Than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. That's kind of problematic because we as Americans pride ourselves on busyness and how much we can do at the same time. Just ask anybody how they're doing. What do they say? Busy. Busier than a one-armed monkey with two bananas. You know, can't get it all done. Busier than a gopher on a golf course. Just got all kinds of things to do. And for years, people have believed that the busier you are, the better off you are. And so we've invented cultural constructs like the eight to five. That wasn't a thing until the industrial revolution. And we do things like have to work 40 hours a week, which now is closer up to 50 to 60 hours a week, depending which industry you're in. And in many jobs, it, it makes no difference how many uh, things you accomplish in the course of a day. You still have to put your hours in. It doesn't matter if you're productive in three hours, you still got to get the eight in. And because of that, an entire generation of young people have grown up without their parents. And now these millennials, as they're labeled, are raging against the system. They don't want to work all of these hours. Uh, They want to be paid just as much, but they don't want to have to put the sacrifice in. And so here's what I want you to write down. This is my entire message this morning from Luke chapter 10. Don't be busy. Be productive. This is what God is going to teach us in Luke chapter 10. God's goal for your life is not busyness. It's productivity. Don't be busy. Be productive. So here we go. Luke chapter 10. Let's pick it up in verse 38. Says, as Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught, but Mar- Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. Your translation might say the big dinner she had to prepare. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity and freedom we have just to come and gather in this place and hear from you. We're asking you to do what only you can do and speak to our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to see the truths that you would have for us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Here in these verses, Jesus is six months away from the cross in half a year He'll be back in Jerusalem at this same house and he will be falsely accused, arrested unjustly. There will be a sham of a trial and ultimately Jesus will be executed. But until then, Jesus is traveling around the area, he's preaching, he's teaching, he's performing miracles, he's healing the sick, he's trying to convince the local people that he is, in fact, the long-awaited and promised Savior of the world. To assist him in this endeavor, he has handpicked a group of 12 men to travel a- around with him. And together, together, they have most recently arrived at a certain village. We know from the rest of Scripture that this certain village is the village of Bethany. Bethany is a short distance from Jerusalem, just over the Mount of Olives. It's uh, one and a half miles, 2.4 kilometers if you're Canadian and are into that kind of thing. I personally am not, but whatever. Jesus was particularly fond of Bethany because of a family that lived there. He liked crashing at their place. They had a nice pad. It was a family of three siblings, very wealthy siblings, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Lazarus is not specifically named here, but we know that he is the brother of Mary and Martha. In fact, not much else about Lazarus is known. Other than that, he is the brother of Mary and Martha and that he was risen from the dead. Uh, If you know that story, Jesus is an awesome friend to have because when you die, he can raise you from the dead. He will do that for you one day as well. But nonetheless, the what I find compelling about Lazarus' story is this. John chapter 12 reads, When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too. Wasn't good enough just to kill Jesus. Better kill Lazarus for it's because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. That's what got Jesus killed. Because people were believing in the priests beforehand and no longer people wanted to believe in them. They see this son of God. We better believe in him. And they killed Jesus because of it. Don't expect people to be happy when you meet God. Don't expect people to have the same thrill of a life change that you have just because you know Jesus. Now, According to orthodox tradition, uh, Lazarus does escape this plot to kill him. He leaves the village of Bethany. And according to tradition, Paul and Barnabas make Lazarus a bishop on the island of Cyprus. That's not actually uh, spelled out for us in Scripture. Again, that's tradition, but it's interesting to think about nonetheless. Something else caught my attention in this story. In a male dominated society like this one, you would expect the author to record that Jesus and his disciples were welcomed into Lazarus' home. Uh, because the, the firstborn male, they have all the important benefits, but that's not what Scripture says. It says that uh, Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. Why is it Martha's house? Why isn't it Mary's house? Why isn't it Lazarus' house? It's Martha's house because Martha is the one who has basically figured out how the family is going to live. Martha is the kind of person who, in any situation, she ends up taking charge. She's a leader. She knows what to do before anybody else does. She's very decisive. She is quick to tell other people what they should be doing, she's ambitious. We know from other scripture that when Lazarus dies, Martha is the one who goes out to greet Jesus on the road. Martha is the one who begins questioning Jesus about where he was and why he allowed her brother to die. Martha is the one who says when Jesus is trying to get the stone rolled away from the tomb in order to raise Lazarus from the dead, Martha is the one who says, but he stinks. He, he's been dead for four days, Jesus. Martha is a no-nonsense, impatient person. Martha is Bert from Bert and Ernie. You all know what I'm talking about? She's anxious. She's high-strung. She's fidgety. This is Martha, and this is her home. Quite the opposite is Mary. Mary is chill. Mary is relaxed. Mary is calm and pleasant and the opposite of high-maintenance. Mary is the kind of girl every woman pretends to be up until you get married. Uh, She is the one who says, oh, it's it's not that big of a deal where we go eat. Let's go wherever you want to go. Mary is the one that says, I don't mind that he can't remember to put his clothes away. No, snoring doesn't bother me. But once you're married, pun intended, she goes away and Martha shows up. And as don't you put your shoes on my carpet. How dare you fall asleep this early? And why are you snoring? I'm going to suffocate you. Uh, That's Martha and Mary. And we like to say, calm down, Martha. But Martha cannot calm down because Martha's planning a party. Martha's been on Pinterest. Her emotions are at an all-time high. She's been seeing pictures, and she's just a wreck because everything needs to be perfect for Jesus. Jesus is coming, and he likes themes, so maybe there should be a theme. Jesus is very thematic. My party should probably have a Mexican theme. We probably need little sombreros and salsa and maybe a big sombrero full of salsa. That would be amazing. And guacamole and churros for dessert definitely going to need a piñata if we're going to have a party it's got to be a piñata probably should be a dora piñata because how many of y'all know that it would be very satisfying to smash her open you know what was your favorite part of the trip today smashing you dora that was my favorite where's boots i would like a shot at boots myself as well but i have daughters i apologize for that but As Martha is sorting out all of the details, she starts to realize, hey, I'm the only one doing anything. I'm sure you've got a friend like that. You're like, hey, we should throw a party. And and you're like, well, yeah, let's throw the party. What should I do to help? And they're like, everything. You do it all. It was my idea. You should do everything. Awesome. And this is where Martha found herself. She's doing everything, and all Mary is doing is sitting around, and so she busts in, and she's like, aren't you going to help me? Jesus, aren't you going to tell her to get off her and come do something? And Peter looks at John, and he's like, awkward, you know, this is not... And John whispers back, this is where we're staying tonight? I mean, this lady is crazy, but... Verse 40 says that the reason for the blow-up was because Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. The word distracted in the Greek literally means to be torn into pieces. You can picture ripping up a piece of paper and throwing it in the wind. That's distracted. You can picture golfers picking up the grass and throwing it up and it being blown away. That's being distracted. And that's what's going on in Martha's soul. What's ironic is she's distracted with ministry to Jesus. She's not being distracted with secular work. You thought about that? Everything she's doing is for him. She's incredibly busy. She's running around like a chicken with her head cut off. But it's all for Jesus. It's probably why Jesus liked coming to the house to begin with. Because he knew everything was going to be taken care of. Everything was going to be in its place. The bed was going to be made. He wasn't going to be sleeping on dirt or in a boat. There's going to be fresh food. There's going to be warm coffee in the morning. It's a very nice, pleasant place to be. But in this case, Jesus says, Martha, you have 30 different things going on. And as a result, you're being torn to pieces says the difference between you and Mary is you need all of these things to be happy. And you need all of these things to come into place just like you want in order to be happy. But Mary chose one thing and it's better. Mary chose me. I wonder what is it that you need to be happy Perhaps the reason you're so unhappy is because this person isn't doing this and you don't have this going right and now this goal isn't being met and you have decided that you need these things in order to be happy. They're non-negotiable. You have to have them. They're emotionally vital and therefore you're being distracted. You're being torn to pieces. Anybody that comes to counseling, to me, I can almost guarantee you at some point in the conversation, I'm going to say all frustration is born out of unmet expectation. You had expectations that this was going to happen, and now you're frustrated because it didn't happen your way, and you want what you want when you wanted it, and because it didn't go your way, although you expected it to, because people should be able to read your mind, your expectations weren't met, and now you're frustrated. And listen, that's not necessarily all bad. The word productive, it means to yield results or benefits or profits. So having our expectations not met is not necessarily a a bad thing to be upset by. I think our problem is we often, like Martha, allow our expectations to define us and dictate our happiness And in turn, we overcomplicate things and we get so busy with life, we're literally being torn apart. Because if the devil can't make you bad, he's going to make you busy. And that's the the moral of life. You just got to be busy. And if he can't distract you with worldly things, he'll get you busy with godly things. So what can we do? Okay, like how can we get productive in a godly way? Put the pieces back from being distracted and from being torn apart. Write this down Be passionate in the plotting. If you want to be productive, you've got to learn how to be passionate in the plotting. Could have said it this way It's not in the epic, it's in the everyday. That is to say, it's not in the big events of your life and not in the pivotal events of your life that your character is forged. Those things only reveal what you have become. Those big events are too seldom to ever make you anything. They only reveal what the day in and day out and mundane and hustle and bustle and humdrum situations have made you. Think about it. Every day you've got thousands of things to decide to do. What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? And you've got thousands of decisions that you have to make. Uh, I've got appointments. How do I get it all in? I've got phone calls. I've got errands. I've got exercise. I've got to work it all in. I've got these kids. They keep following me around. They've got things that you have to do. And it's a tremendous number of things every single day in the mundane humdrum. Got to wake them up. Got to get to school. Got to get breakfast every single day. It's like Groundhog's Day. And like Martha, you have all these plans, these things that you're passionate about and you want to do. And I would guess many of them are very good things. But Jesus says to you, sit at my feet. Calm down. You have all these things that are completely unnecessary. And Jesus comes in and he says, you know, it's in this daily life, the hustle and bustle, the plodding along, that if you'll get with me, it will make you great. And here's what's so amazing. Here's how I know that if you'll get at Jesus' feet, it'll make you great. Because in John chapter 12, watch this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came back to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, go figure, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard. An expensive perfume, valued at roughly $56,000 in today's world. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And if you'll read on, you'll see people start to question, why is she doing this? Jesus, why are you allowing her to spend all of this money on you? And he turns and he says, don't bother her. She's going to be remembered forever. She's preparing me for my burial. You know what that means? It means Mary was the only person on the face of the earth who actually knew and actually believed that Jesus was going to die. Because if you'll read on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see Jesus continually telling the disciples that he was going to die, that he must suffer, that he's going to be persecuted, and they never get it. And if you'll read John 13 through 15 on the day of the crucifixion, the night before, Jesus is telling them these things are going to happen and they still don't get it. And on the cross as he's hanging there and they are, no disciples are to be found except one, John, at the foot of the cross because they've all scattered and gone away because they thought it was all supposed to work in their mind this one way and it didn't work out that way. They never got it. Here's the difference. Mary was at his feet. She listened. She wasn't running his words through her expectations of how things were going to happen, and the apostles, they believed things had to happen like this, and Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government, and he was going to make all the pain go away, and they were going to sit at his right hand, and they were going to be famous, and Mary simply listened. She was the only one who did. Now, the question I find myself asking is, okay, well, how do I do that? in the hustle and bustle? How do I sit down and actually listen? You know, I want to be passionate in applauding. How do I actually do that? Well, off to the side in your notes, you might write this. To keep your passion level high, you have to keep your distraction level low. If you want to continue to be passionate about things, you have to be, stop being distracted by everything else. That's why I harped on multitasking to start the message. Because science has proven that you can't actually multitask. It's physically impossible for your brain to do two things at once. Now, you can shift back and and forth between uh, multiple things at the same time, but you can't actually multitask. And to be fair, I'm less worried for you and more nervous for your kids because they're so distracted. They're growing up in an age that I never had to worry about with technology and everything vying for their time. And we've got multiple sports every single week that we have to practice. And we've got band and we've got vocal and we've got homework and we've got school and somehow we're supposed to fit friends into this. And how am I supposed to Snapchat and how am I supposed to get on the Facebook and how am I supposed to take pictures to Graham? And I want to go plank out, you know, in a field, but I can't do that because there's something to do all of the time. And it's like for real Listen, parents, stop trying to raise great kids. You don't need great kids. You need kids who will become great adults. And there's a difference. And how often do you shove a phone in your kid's face to make them great and quiet? Look at how quiet my kids are in this cart. They're so great and amazing. They calmly sit by. No, they're going to be loud. They're kids. They're going to get into stuff. They're kids. They might have to be home at one night a week, God forbid, and you have to entertain them. Teach them something to do. But you need to calm down, Martha, because you're tearing your kids apart with distractions. You know, God never commanded you to give them experiences. I've read this book through uh, multiple times, and never once does it command me to make my kids well-rounded. You know what it does command me to do? To sit them at Jesus' feet. To teach them everything about what God would have for them in this life. That the only place fullness of life is found is in Jesus. That's what I'm supposed to be teaching my kids. But you are so busy being torn apart, kids just think that's natural, that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Here's what else you should know number two, make your priorities an actual priority. If you're going to be productive, we all set goals every new year. Well, you actually need to make those priorities an actual priority. Because if we learn anything from this text, it's that messed up priorities lead to a messed up attitude. I can pretty much guarantee you anytime your attitude's jacked up, it's a result. And you can trace it back to your priorities being out of whack. What's Martha do when her priorities are off the rails and in turn her attitude reflects it? she cuts off Jesus' sermon and starts ordering him around. you thought about that? Tell her to help me. It's actually what a lot of Christians like to do. They like to project their calling onto other people. And they say, if I'm doing this and I'm godly, then everybody else should be doing exactly the same thing that I'm doing. But God might have given you the gift of hospitality, and he doesn't give it to everybody else. It's the whole point of the parable of the talents. God gives people in different ways. What it does mean is you should find your one thing, like Mary found hers, and use it to serve God. That's why I'm so passionate about you going through our next process. Not because I want something from you, but because I want you to discover your one thing. How God has gifted you and wired you and shaped you with a purpose in mind. I want you to discover what it is that you can be doing, because Mary found hers. And people like to say, well, pastor, I'm just like Mary. I just like to sit there and listen at Jesus' feet and study. That's not Mary. That's lazy. Sitting at Jesus' feet like Mary should lead to the passion and zeal that Martha had. Read the rest of Mary's story. She's the one at the cross. She's the one at the tomb. She's the one who did work. Her sitting led to service. You need to take some time and really analyze and establish, not what do I want to do? That's the wrong question. You need to ask yourself, who do I want to become? And then start setting your priorities and make them an actual priority about you 15 years from now. When you understand who you want to be, then you can start organizing your life because when you prioritize your life, God's provision has a place to land. Why would God put blessing in your life if you're being torn apart and you have all of these different things to do? No, you need a foundation. You need to be at Jesus' feet so that he can continue to bless your life. Look, point of fact, Jesus never asked for this banquet. In fact, to my knowledge, he never asked any person to do one thing to make him anything. He could take care of that himself. You know, he had abilities. You all know what I'm saying? Remember the water to wine thing? And the whole fish and loaves and 5,000 people did? Jesus could take care of stuff himself. And what I want you to realize is what Jesus is doing in Martha's house is bigger than anything she's doing. And what I really want you to know is what Jesus is doing in this house is bigger than anything that we're doing. What's so amazing is that Jesus asks you to be involved. That he says, no, what I'm doing is bigger, but I still want you to play your part. And what I really know is all of us working together, we're better together. We can accomplish way more together than we can being torn apart. You might want to write in your notes, make sure my priorities, make sure they're God's priorities. Just because they're my priorities doesn't mean that it's Jesus's priority for your life. Because when you live without Jesus's permission, you work without his power. And when you do that, you're going to fail, and then you're going to be frustrated, and then you're going to want him to fix it. And he's like, I never asked you to do that, that wasn't my priority. Again, Martha had to prepare this meal, Scripture tells us. You need to know that the spirit of obligation is the enemy of joy. That when you have to do things for Jesus, you're never going to find joy in it. But when Jesus asks you to do something, it's so you can find joy and fullness of life. God wants you to have joy. God wants you to have recreation. He wants you to experience good things on this planet that He has created. But because we have so much opportunity in this country, one thing leads to another, and now you haven't opened your Bible in a week, and you haven't been to church in three months, and because we have all these opportunities, those things cost money, and you haven't tithed in God knows how long, and because you You've never set small group as a priority in your life because that's where life change is going to happen in the context of a relationship. You always find yourself having things on the night small group meets. How come it's God that always gets bumped? How come none of those other things have to take a backseat to what God would want in your life? You know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. Your priorities aren't God's priorities and they're not lining up in your life And you're saying yes to everything, and you're being distracted. You're being torn apart. Be intentionally paced. Stop saying yes to everything. Start thinking of you 15 years from now, and then prioritize your priorities. Who do I want to be? There's this interesting character in your Bible. His name's David. You've probably heard of him. He killed a giant. Kind of popular. Uh, What's fascinating about the whole event is David's dad sent him to the army camp. His brothers were in the military and his dad wanted to know, hey, how are the boys doing? Here's some meals. You know, they need some rations over there. Why don't you go take them something to eat? See how they're doing? Come report back to me. And while David was there, this giant Goliath, he started making fun of the Israelites. He started making fun of their God. And David was like, what's the deal with that? And if David would have had most people's attitude... He would have never stayed, not because he was afraid, but because he had all these other things he had to do. He had the sheep out in the pasture. He had to get back to them. He had to go report back to dad. How are the guys doing? You know, Game of Thrones is on tonight. KU and K-State play tomorrow. Big Monday. God willing, KU will win, because if they don't, I've got to wear a K-State shirt to preach in. Come on, somebody. that will be a dark day in New Anthem's history. And if, if that would have been David's attitude, so listen to me now, if you don't have any margin, you'll walk right past God thing, things God has planned for you. If you don't have any margin, you'll miss out on opportunities that God wanted you to accomplish. And I wonder how many of you have missed out on those opportunities because of your overbooked schedule. And what's most scary about that is one day you're going to have to stand before God and explain to him why you missed out on an opportunity, why he had to get somebody else to do what you were supposed to do. scary to think about. Here's the last thing to remember if you're going to be productive. There's nothing to prove when God says you're approved. Nothing to prove when God says you're approved. In other words, doing things for God is not a replacement for spending time with God. It's a result. The reason Martha's so upset is because she's doing everything for, for Jesus. But if she was really doing everything for Jesus, then she would have never been upset. Why not? Because you see, Jesus is the one who could say, hey, I don't need that. Jesus is the one person who could say, hey, I'm fine with uh, one burrito, not three. You know, I don't need three pinatas, one you know, the sombrero, that's all fine. I don't need everything else. If she was really doing this for Jesus, she wouldn't have been upset when he refuses to let things go the way she wants. He wouldn't help her. He wouldn't command Mary to go and help her. Now she's all upset. And unanswered prayer proves that she's not doing it for Jesus. She's doing it for herself. She's trying to prove herself with her Christian ministry. She's trying to prove herself to the disciples with how good her food is. It's not for the Lord. It's for looks. Now, she says, I'm doing it for you and your glory and your agenda, like many of us would do. But the fact that when things got changed, she got fired up, proves this is about her. Listen to me, sometimes God will change things in your life to see if you're actually doing it for the right reason. If you're in this for God, if he's really the Lord of your life, then he could change whatever he wanted to. Because his command was, follow me, not do whatever you want and I'll be there with you. There's a big difference. Pay careful attention to what Jesus is really saying to Martha. He's saying, Martha, I'm a good manager of my people's time. I wouldn't give you 10 things to do if I knew you could only do three. If you have more things to do in a day than a person can humanly do, that's not from God. That's from you. And that's you trying to prove yourself. When God says that if you trust in Jesus as Lord of your life, you're already approved. When he looks at you and your work, he sees Jesus. It had nothing to do with you. Your salvation had nothing to do with you. You didn't earn that. Jesus paid for that on the cross. I came to church this morning to tell somebody activity is no substitute for intimacy. You're doing things for God, and he didn't ask you to do them, and you have all this activity, when the reality is he just wants a relationship. He just wants time with you where you're sitting at his feet, and he's teaching you how you should live your life. He wants an intimate relationship, not a working relationship. Imagine how this conversation with my wife would go. If she says to me, hey, I'd I'd love to go out tonight, Maybe we could go to Chester's and get some good food and we could go get a hotel room. Wink. Imagine how the conversation would go if I said, I mowed the lawn. I spent all week working to pay for this mortgage. Is that not enough for you? I'm terrified just thinking about it. (laughs) Right? She knows enough to hit me where the bruises don't show. People won't see them. It's crazy. So listen, God doesn't want something from you. God wants something for you. And he wants you to be his child. And he wants you to sit at his feet. And he wants you growing and serving and being discipled. And the time together where you're at his feet, listening to the things that he wants you to do, it should fire you up, not burn you out. If you're really doing things for God, it should spark passion and zeal inside of you. And so let me close with this question. Why this home? Of all the people in the world, of all the people that lived in Bethany, why Martha's home? We're actually told in verse 38, it says, because he was welcomed. Martha welcomed him into her home. Other scripture teaches us that where Jesus wasn't welcome, he had to leave. In fact, it'll go so far as to say that that Jesus couldn't even do miracles where he wasn't welcomed. So what I want you to know is Jesus won't go where he isn't welcome. Maybe your problem isn't the Mary-Martha dilemma of the Christians. Am I too busy sitting at his feet? Am I doing what he wants me to do? No, your problem is you're too productive to be a Christian. Your problem is you like the busyness. You like the significance you find in having all these things to do. You like the attention, and you like what the attention gets you. You like the money. But might I direct your attention to the scariest passage in all of Scripture. Read it on your own. Matthew chapter 7 people show up to Jesus in heaven and they say, hey, we're ready to come in. And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. And they're like, well, we did all these things in your name. We cast out demons. We did miracles. We were, we we're pretty amazing, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, but you never sat at my feet. I, I never knew you. Write this down. Productivity will lead to Peace. If you're really being productive, it's going to lead to peace. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's peace. It's not being torn apart. Jesus came to put you back together, to make you whole, to bring you peace. And to reconcile you back to God, where fullness of life is found. All these things that you're trying to do, if it's not peace, it's not from God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, we're again just asking you to speak into our lives right now. Where are our priorities not lining up? Who do you want us to be? As we pray and spend just a few minutes here reflecting on this word from God, I would just challenge you to quiet your heart. Fifteen things happened this morning already. I totally get that. It's hard just getting here. I understand. You got all these things going, but I'm asking you to be quiet. This is a holy moment. God's trying to speak to you. He might be trying to challenge you or convict you or lead you in some area of life. Don't put that off. Don't push that away. Where's your passion lacking? Where's your peace lacking? What's a decision that you need to make today? Who's a person that you need to talk to? God, speak to our hearts. Do what only you can do. Lead us into fullness Of life. We're here at your feet waiting to hear from you. Some of you, the word that God is speaking to you right now is that you have never surrendered. You've never actually given your life to Him. He wants you to do that now. He's saying, just believe. I would invite you to surrender your life right now say God I believe in your son Jesus that he died for me and rose from the dead forgive my busyness forgive my sin forgive my working in vain I give my life to you thank you for saving me God, we look to you. We give you the rest of our days. Help us find peace and joy and fullness of life through your son, Jesus. It's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen.